0: Hey, everyone, this is Jackson Swearer, entrepreneur navigator at Startup Hutch and your host for the hot seat. This time I'm sitting down with Sam Foreman from the Foreman Law Group. We're going to be talking about legal issues and how that relates to starting and operating businesses. Sam also has a lot of experience building entrepreneurship ecosystems for some of his work out of Wichita and the South Central Kansas region. Toward the end of our conversation, we talk a little bit about his experience starting a business of his own as well. So I think that you'll find some general entrepreneurship advice in this episode. I hope that you'll take a listen.
1: But before we do, we have a quick disclaimer from Sam. As we discuss legal topics in this episode, please note that No attorney-client relationship is formed by any of the, the topics that are discussed and no legal advice is intended. It's for general informational purposes only. Please consult with your attorney with any legal questions you have.
0: All right, well, welcome, Sam. We're so glad to have you here. And I think we should start the conversation if you'll tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what your uh, business is.
1: Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Sam Foreman. Uh, I'm, an at- I'm a business attorney uh, from Wichita. Grew up in Kansas, actually in the Topeka area. I've lived here in South Central Kansas for going on 12 years now. Uh, my wife and I have two have uh, Very fun, very energetic boys who like to get up currently in the middle of the night, um, which makes sleep a challenge. But uh, uh, my business uh, is form and law. I serve, uh, we serve a lot of businesses uh, with needs ranging from startup, you know, or early stage venture uh, type needs, forming the business, structuring ownership relationships, um, all the way through, you know, buying and selling businesses at the other end. And, and most of the things in between, you know, avid sports fan. Uh, occasional exerciser. Just really, really enjoy being around people.
0: That's great. And thanks again for coming in today. I, I hope that we can have a conversation about law and legal matters as that relates to business. But also, I know that you are yourself an entrepreneur who started your own law firm. And so I think that you have some unique insights to bring to the uh, to the conversation today. So to get into that a little further I know you've been involved in some entrepreneurship, sort of community building Mm -hmm. work in the Wichita area. Can you speak a little bit to that and and what your role in that has been?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So several years ago, I think it's been about five or six, um, was involved on a task force through the Wichita Chamber that was involved in starting an organization called E2E, which is now Nextus, which does a lot of entrepreneurial ecosystem building uh, in the South Central Kansas region and Wichita specifically. Um, So I was part of helping get that off the ground, part of um, the initial board on that, really passionate about entrepreneurship here in Kansas and specifically in the South Central Kansas region and um, just, you know, trying to help connect folks and, uh, you know, see organizations like that get started. Um, Those are critical pieces to, you know, continuing to move forward.
0: Absolutely. So I think we might want to break up the conversation about legal matters related to business into a couple categories. <laughs> one be kind of being the ongoing business concerns, and then maybe one related to newer startups. So sure. you know we're startup hutch here, so that seems like a good <laughs> uh, a, a good first place to go. So what are some of the legal considerations that someone should have in mind if they're thinking about starting a business?
1: Yeah. So uh, I think one of the first things they need to think about is Having a legal entity, just just from the get-go, that's, that's a critical piece. And I'm going to break uh, in
0: here and just, sure. can you describe a little bit what some of the options are for sure. different legal entities?
1: Yeah. So broadly speaking, you've got a limited liability company or an LLC, and that's the most commonly, uh, that's the one that's most commonly used. Uh, you've got a corporation, um, and those, those are really the two big ones. What you also hear some folks talk about sometimes is an S-corp and a sole proprietorship. And I want to distinguish those. An S corp isn't actually a type of entity. It's a tax election. And so an LLC can elect to be taxed as an S corp and a corporation can also be taxed as an S corp. So that's something you definitely want to talk to your accountant about. Um, a sole proprietorship is not actually a legal entity. Some folks think, well, I'm, I'm a sole proprietorship. It's not a legal entity type. It's not providing you with limited liability protection. So yeah, really an LLC and a corporation are the two big ones that folks are looking at.
0: Okay. So what sorts of factors should people be thinking about when they're trying to decide you know, whether they really do need to create a legal entity or instead of just operating as a sole proprietorship? And if so, which they should choose?
1: Yeah. So I think, I think the first question is, if you're going to run a business, you should have a legal entity. If it's not a business, then it's a hobby. Um, and you should still maybe have a legal entity. But if it's something where you're planning to take risk and make money, You really need to have a legal entity. That's that's kind of the the threshold question for me. Yeah. So there's a couple of factors that go into picking an entity. I think the first one to look at is uh, is taxes, Um, because you know the different entity structures, the different tax elections, you know, have a direct impact on how many dollars you keep in your pocket. Um, And you're always just trying to guess correctly about the future, because as most folks uh, are probably aware, Washington D.C. and Topeka, Kansas aren't always really stable places. And so tax policy changes, and that's important to understand. But that's a key consideration. Have a good conversation with your accountant, get their direction. Um, Another one is, uh, you know, what does your investor want? Like if you are raising money from investors, um, you're selling them something, you're selling them a security. And that's, you know, there's a lot more to be said on that. But um, you want to understand what they want so that you can structure it to be as appealing as possible. A lot of local investors, they don't care a lot whether it's an LLC or corporation, and that of course is a, you know, generalization. But when you start getting into raising money for, you know, high growth ventures, like uh, where you're raising money from, you know, private equity firms or venture capital firms, frequently they have one way that they like to do things. And it's really important if you're going to raise money from them to understand what is that approach. And most of them like they like C Corps. They like a, you know, traditional corporation that's that's taxed as a C Corp. It's not taxed as an S Corp, you know, for a variety of different reasons. And if you're not, you know, checking all those boxes, then you're gonna have to check all those boxes before they'll write you a check. So um so those are those are two big factors. Yep. So you mentioned something about raising capital.
0: I think you mm-hmm. know a lot of smaller entrepreneurs try to self-finance or maybe mm-hmm. they go get a small business loan, but you've uh, raised the issue of people who are with larger potential ventures who need mm-hmm. to raise capital and that they might be selling securities. Do you want to dive in or at least give us a surface level of what some of the considerations are when you're looking to get investors in your company?
1: Yeah. So um, as a starting point, talk to, talk to a, a savvy attorney that, that really knows their way around around the space. Um, if they're raising uh, money in the startup space, you know, talking to somebody who not just has a securities background, but specific to um, startup fundraising, that's that's really important. And they need to see it often enough that they really know their way around it. I used to think I was going to be one of those people. I'm, I'm probably not. I can learn it if I need to, but that's, that's probably not me. Um, the kinds of information that is shared with folks is really, really important. That disclosure that's shared with a potential investor from a securities compliance standpoint is really, really critical. They need to know what they're getting into. How it's sold, who it's sold to is really important. You can't just go open up the paper and say, hey, you know, so-and-so looks like they've got money. I should go talk to them. Um, that's what's, what's often called or could be what's often called general solicitation, um, which usually is not permissible without some sort of security compliance steps um, to be taken. Um, Advertising, you know, don't go out putting on, you know, LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever. Hey, I'm, you know, raising money in my business, you know, give me a call. Um, Advertising, you know, there's some compliance steps that would have to be taken for that to be okay. Who you're raising money from, uh, you know, is it friends and family? Is it, you know, mom and pop? Is it grandma? Is it, you know, somebody you don't know? All of those things are relevant to what kind of compliance steps need to be taken. As a general matter, there's a lot of, you know, friends and family investing and local stuff that isn't complicated from a compliance standpoint, isn't complicated in terms of, you know, making sure that it's done properly, but all of it, you just need to have a conversation, make sure you understand where the edges are.
0: Very good. So let's take a step forward in the business timeline and think about somebody who's been in business for a little Mm -hmm. while. What are some of the legal concerns that you've seen come up for existing businesses, either as they're looking to expand or just, just sort of operational concerns that come up?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest one is is uh, you know from a legal perspective is pay attention to how your business is changing and how your priorities are changing and have a really good checklist um, that you review on a regular basis so that you can properly filter through the legal issues. Um, a couple that we run into on a regular basis that folks need to pay attention to um, is like classification of your workforce. Um, are they employees? Are they independent contractors? This is an area of the law that you know, regulators are getting increasingly uh, vigilant about whether or not somebody is a, you know, some people say, I've got a 1099 employee. Well, a 1099 is an independent contractor term. It's not an employee. If it looks like a DAC, talks like a DAC, you know, probably a DAC. If it's, if it's an employee, it's, it's probably an employee. And just bite the bullet and figure out how to make that happen. Um, so classification of employees is really important. Um, uh, compliance steps. You know, a lot of folks will start off and they're not thinking you know, real actively or proactively about, hey, is is the way my business is run compliant with you know various regulations? Always thinking about, okay, do I need to update my my processes, my policies on compliance? Do I have good vendor contracts? Do I have good customer contracts? Um, where are the key risks and the key value points out in my business, and how do I protect those? Often contracts are really really valuable, um, and a lot of times folks will start off with. You know, something they borrowed from a friend, something they stole from a competitor, <laughs> uh, something they downloaded online that looked reputable at the time. And then we'll you know, work through with folks figuring out, okay, here, here's where this really needs to be. So making sure your contracts are updated and current, um, thinking about how your key employee relationships are structured and making sure that like, if you need non-competes, non-solicitation, you know, a lot of times the critical value of a business is in its workforce. Um, it's in its relationships. Um, and if those folks are creating value and they're being rewarded for that, do you have appropriate protections around making sure that they're not then going to um, take all that you're investing in them and then go start a competing business, for example, or go work for a competitor who might just pay them a little bit more, for example. Um, so those, those are some key things. Thinking about intellectual property. You know how is that changing? If that's where a lot of your your value in your business is, whether it's your brand, um, whether it's your software, you know, whatever it is, thinking about what those key assets are, um, and figuring out how to protect those as they grow and as they change. So those those are some key things to 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 really keep an eye on. Oh, and ownership relationships. You know, a lot of folks start off and they've got you know the simplest, cheapest you know approach to how their ownership relationships are structured, and they haven't thought about things like, well, what happens if you know, my buddy that I've known forever, you know, dies, you know, now I'm dealing with his family or with whomever else he said his heirs are. And so, you know, thinking through some of those things and making sure that there's appropriate agreements in place is really important.
0: Very good. So that, yeah, there's a a long checklist of things to think about there, but I think that was a really good comprehensive take. And I had on my list to ask about trademark and copyright concerns. Um, that's related to intellectual property Mm -hmm anything you you'd add about that. And I say I'm asking the question from a point of view that I know it can be expensive to get things trademarked and copyrighted for mm-hmm. some people who are just starting out that may or may not be appropriate for them. Like maybe some advice about when you should think about that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, so great great question. You know trademark, copyright protection. Um, when should you think about it? Um, you should think about it. I think as soon as you get started and you identify that it's a either a valuable asset or it's something that creates risk for your business. And think about that with both trademark and copyright protection or risks, and then when should you take action on it? That's that's really a you know both a business decision and I'd call it kind of a gut decision for folks. Unless you're breaking the law, and then it, the answer is always don't break the law, follow the law. <laughs> but a lot of times it's it's a lot more gray than that. You know I tell folks you know when when you've decided that it's an important part of your business and that it's valuable enough to start spending the money on you know and that's a cost benefit analysis each client needs to do on their own. Um, you yeah, know that's the time to really start spending money on it and thinking about it. But it's those are key assets. They're important assets. Um, they can be protected and they can be lost. Uh, trademark protection for folks um, that are thinking about it. That's really think about your brand. Think about your name. Think about your logos. Um, those are trademarks. Copyrights. That's going to be things like software code, for example, or you know artwork, design, you know graphics, different things like that. And sometimes you'll have the same asset that could be protected by trademark and copyright.
0: One of the other things that you mentioned was ownership relationships and I mm-hmm. find that to be kind of interesting. Can you speak a little bit to different ways of setting up those ownership relationships and how that is related to the entity choice question that we were talking about
1: earlier? That's a great question. How we encourage, you know, folks to think about ownership relationships is is you're getting married? in many respects you are, I mean, you're, you're combining finances, you're taking care of assets. You know, there's, there's just a lot of similarities to that and you got to think through enough of the details to make sure that they work for the most part. And there's, there's few exceptions. They'd be primarily tax related. Your structure of ownership relationships can be very similar, whether you're dealing with an LLC or you're dealing with a corporation. Um, So for all intents and purposes, the concepts that, you know, I'll talk about are going to apply to both. But you want to think about, you know, is it clear, you know, what each party has to put in to to the business in order to keep, you know, in order to get, but then also to keep their ownership. One that we see a lot of folks, um, you know, have unexpressed expectations about is services. Like, I thought so-and-so was going to be working just as hard as I am in the business, and now they have 50%, and they don't ever come in. And <laughs> What am I going to do? Well, what does your buyout say? My what? <laughs> you know? um, so, so making sure that all those expectations are expressed, that they're written down, that's really, really important. Um, what are people putting in? What are they getting? How does ownership change? You know, if something happens, how does that get readjusted if it gets readjusted at all? Um, what happens if people want to sell their ownership? You know, is it something where the company or the other owners have the right to buy them out or can it happen at all? Or is it just, yeah, whatever I want to do, I get to do, you know, um, are there non-competes? You know, do you want to find out that your business partner is opening up a competing business? Are there other things that are going to protect the ownership relationship there? How does the business get sold? That's a really important one. I mean, a, you don't want to find out probably that the business is getting sold, um, without your involvement at all. But if you're the majority owner, for example, how do you sell the business and, you know, capture the value that you've created and maybe created the majority of, you know, relative to the minority? So you get to talk about sale rights and, you know, things like drag alongs and tag alongs, and that kind of stuff. So a lot of topics to, to think about, but they're really important. The earlier you think about them, the earlier you put them in place, you know, generally the more predictability and protection that folks have. And um, the goal is to set clear expectations So that then people know how it works so they can optimize their outcomes within the the framework they've set up.
0: Most of what I heard there was about uh, ownership structures that involve more than one person who Mm -hmm. aren't from the same household, which of course makes sense. One other thing that I've seen people do is you'll have uh, two partners who are married to each other who are also involved in business. And usually there's a 50-50 split, but not mm-hmm. always. Sometimes you get some 51-49 splits, for example, if you're looking to take advantage of women-owned businesses mm-hmm. and some, some other things like that. Do you have any advice or comments about maybe the, the risks uh, around that and or what some of the pros might be?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's something we see a lot. Um, and you know, some of the same principles apply. You always want to go into, into business with folks that you have a lot of trust with and you, you really have a good working relationship. Um, and some of the best married couples that I know have wisely chosen to never do business with each other. <laughs> and some folks are, you know, some couples are extraordinary at it. Um, and it's like, man, that's like the model, right? Like, Like, that's the goal. And so at the front end, people need to have a really hard conversation with themselves about, does this even make sense? Because at the end of the day, you know, the legal rights that you can put on paper aren't going to do you any good if the relationship breaks down. And that's true whether it's a married couple or whether it's, you know, you know, just a completely traditional arm's length business transaction. We always talk to folks, you know, when it's a husband-wife scenario about those same types of topics of, do you want the bells and whistles? Um Usually, where it comes back to is, you know, if things really break down, unless there's a specific legal reason to have it structured some way for a third party, is if things really break down, you're going to end up in front of a different kind of judge who's really going to tell you what to do. And of course, there's there's you know, caveats to all of that. But as a general matter, that's, you know, that's that's where a lot of folks come down on the side of let's keep it fairly simple. We don't need to have all the you know all the bells and whistles. And you know, there's pros and cons to both approaches, um, for sure.
0: Do you have any other general legal advice that's related to business around a topic that we haven't covered yet that you want to make sure that we get to?
1: I think I have two pieces of advice. I think the first is have a good relationship with an attorney. Even if it's somebody that you just take out for coffee every now and then as a starting point and you build that relationship over time and then you start using their professional services, have a good relationship with somebody you trust that you can go to with, with important questions. They need to know as much about your business as you need to know the legal advice, and they're only going to be able to help you as much as they know so about your business and your situation. So have that relationship. Make sure that they stay in the loop, uh, and that goes for your whole professional team. Think about building a professional team. We live in a community where there's lots of um, uh, DIY mindset of I can do it myself, and there's a lot of really smart, capable people that can figure out a lot of stuff on their own. Um, but you're never going to make a really successful, profitable business trying to do things that you can figure out how to do, but that's not your highest and best use. So build your team and rely on them. I think that's the first piece. And the other is take really, really good care of relationships. Um, so much of, you know, at least the the areas of law that I practice in are really about relationships. It's not just the contracts. When things break, it's usually the relationships that are broken you know, I think just about every time I've had a client that's in litigation, it's not because the contract broke down or something else. It's because the relationship broke down and people couldn't figure it out, and work it out. So take really, really good care of those relationships. And a lot of that's about setting really good expectations up front. You know, invest in that first 10% of the process. Make sure everybody's on the same page. Don't leave expectations unexpressed. It's like any other other relationship you know, get it out there on the table. Say, this is what works for me. This is what doesn't work for me. You know, let's make sure we're on the same page before we invest in making this happen.
0: Other than legal advice, speaking now as an entrepreneur, somebody who started their own business, what's some advice that you would have to other people looking to start something? Ooh,
1: how much time do we have? (laughs) Um, uh, I think the, the first piece of advice... Uh, is uh, do a uh, a wellness audit for yourself before you start. Um, this is something I did not have a good appreciation for when I started my business, uh, through a combination of inexperience and arrogance. Frankly, is you know it is such an intensive process, and it is going to stretch you in ways you you don't really expect if you're really pouring yourself into it. And so really having a sense of where your own personal wellness is at and setting up plans and boundaries um, and engaging your support structure to make sure that you um, stay healthy and well in the process. I think that for me is, is rule number one, because when people start to break down personally, um, whether that's through their relationships, through their mental health, through their physical health, whatever, you know, it can be the breaking point for your business as well. And when you're starting out and most of the value is tied up in you as the founder, you know, something happens to you, something happens to the business. So I think that's number one. I think number two is really make sure that, uh, your, your family, uh, understands and and you set expectations there as well. Most people have a tendency to underestimate how much time it's going to take, um, how much money it's going to cost. Um, and so they haven't set those expectations about, Hey, I'm going to have to work these longer hours you know, this is going to bring home more stress, you know, just different things. And so setting those expectations, I think, is really, really important. Um, be diligent in your planning, but don't go into such a granular level of detail that you lose sight of the big picture. I have a tendency to go into way too much detail on stuff. And then you can a lot of times destroy the value because you lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, so I think that's that's been something that I've been trying to learn one of the biggest pieces for me is be really disciplined and also i think really confident about identifying where your highest and best use is where do you create absolutely more value per dollar than any other activity that you do and figure out how to spend as much of your time doing that as you possibly can and as little time as possible doing anything else it's really tempting early on, and I've spent several years buying this lie <laughs> to think that I've got to do all of these other things um, when some of them just aren't that important and don't need to be done at all. Or they don't need to be done to the level that, you know, I feel like I've got to have them done or that I you know, will somehow not be able to afford to pay for them because, you know, I won't be able to sell enough or do something else, for example, you know, figure out for yourself as quickly as you can, where do I create more value per dollar? Pay attention to it, especially as it changes over time. And then figure out how to build a team around yourself, whether that's through, you know, vendors or service providers or employees or what have you, to do everything else. So,
0: yeah. I want to pick up on a couple of threads there, one related to planning and one related Mm -hmm. to how your skills and what your business needs from you might change over time. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if you can speak uh, a little bit to any personal experience that you may have had through your business or maybe some things that you've seen some of your clients go through where people needed to make an important change in the way that they ran or organized their business and how you approach both identifying that but also then executing on that and being able to do that.
1: No, so that's so that's a great question. You know, How do you identify when it's time to make an important change in your business and then how do you execute on that? You know, one of our core values as a firm is margin, and I think that's part of where it starts. You have to have enough space to really think about and absorb what is going on with your business. I've had a you know, bad habit that I think a lot of founders have, which is to overextend yourself from a calendar perspective, from a mental bandwidth perspective, et cetera. And if there's no space, it's really, really difficult to have enough time to really pick up on all the observations that you've subconsciously been, you know, accumulating over time. So you have to have enough space carved out to be able to sit down and look at the things that matter and really figure out, okay, is this working the way that I want it to? Is this working the way that it needs it to? I'm under a lot of stress right now. My financials aren't performing the way that they need to. What am I going to do about it? Well, if you're overextended, you don't have any margin. There isn't anything you can do about it. And if you realize there is, there isn't anything you can do about it either, (laughs) because you don't have any margin. And so you've got to create and protect space for what's important. Um, So I think where it starts is you got to have enough margin in terms of taking action on it. It's again, you got to have enough margin, you got to have enough margin in your time and your energy and energy, not just in the sense of, you know, I've got enough to get up and go to work, but you got to have enough emotional energy frequently. I mean, that's a topic doesn't get a lot of discussion, but making decisions will drain you, you know, especially as a leader, especially somebody who's doing a lot of new things. And so you've got to have enough margin. You got to have enough emotional energy to actually execute on something and make it happen. And so uh, in terms of making it happen um, and executing on it, I think it's important to create some accountability with that, whether you've got a professional advisor that you're working with on executing the plan and making the change, or you've got a friend or something else I think it's important to set deadlines so that there's some sense of urgency to it, but they need to be meaningful. They need to be reasonable, of course, and they can't just be, you know, deadlines for deadlines sake, of course. But I think that's an important way to start making those changes. Real real quickly, though, one of the critical pieces is not just implementing the change or executing on it, but you got to have a plan for follow through. This is where I've made a lot of my mistakes in the growth process is implementing something or adopting something and then not having enough of a plan for follow-through to where it becomes integrated. And then you spend all that energy and all those resources starting something, but without integrating it, it doesn't
0: really matter. I'm wondering if you have a specific example that might eliminate that.
1: <laughs> um, oh, let me think about that for a minute. Um, so, so that's a great question. I do have a specific example. We've talked several times about implementing certain training programs internally or certain financial model changes, both of which I'm confident we'll get to because we're changing our approach to it. But where we've come up with a plan and we've started implementation, but there hasn't been a plan for that follow through. And so then it has taken a long time. One where we're actually just now finishing it because we've approached it differently started about two years ago. And we've spent a lot of time talking about it and a lot of time with it started, but no implementation because there haven't been enough resources behind it. There wasn't a plan for real, you know, serious, legitimate integration resources.
0: Okay. So as we're wrapping up here, what are maybe one or two things about building a strong ecosystem to support entrepreneurs that you think are really important that are, are gaps that may exist that need to be filled by professionals such as yourself or other people looking to support entrepreneurs?
1: That's a great question. I, I think what i see as being one of the biggest opportunities we have to take a significant step forward as a startup ecosystem here in the south central kansas region is we need more people starting exciting cool you know sometimes not very sexy but but starting really strong ventures you know starting really strong businesses we need more founders we need more people starting new things we're just not seeing a high enough volume and velocity of it I think a critical step to getting there is that we've got to go overcome this hurdle, uh, this, this fear of failure as a community. It's one of the biggest obstacles I see is that people are really, really afraid of failing. And I think a big part of that is that they don't see the value in failure. When you look at really successful, vibrant, thriving entrepreneurial ecosystems you see lots and lots of learning and most of that learning comes from failing and i think that's where we're getting hung up at is people are so afraid to fail that they don't take the first step they're so afraid to fail that they don't even take the you know they don't even have the idea um, because they don't even want to risk it right you know from an investor side of things they create too much pressure um, for people to take high risk or they stay in too long to you know, leave a venture open that should have you know, taken the learning and leveraged it into the next thing. Most founders aren't successful on their first thing. They're not successful on their second thing. A lot of times they're not successful on their third thing. Maybe it's the fourth thing or the fifth thing, but they try a lot and it's that learning. It's that learning that is the biggest asset. And if we don't fail fast enough and we don't fail often enough, we don't create enough assets. We don't create enough learning assets to really create the big wins. And so I think creating a more, uh, a more supportive environment that uh, encourages risk-taking and provides people with an opportunity to know that failure is part of the expectation and failure is not uh, the wrong outcome sometimes. It's just part of doing business. And it doesn't then make you a pariah where we in the community can do a great job is making sure that when people fail, that they're supported and they're helped, you know, they're shown to their next thing. They're not becoming an outcast when we put them, you know, create them, you know, make them a pariah, make them a, you know, unwelcome in business circles or whatever, assuming that they didn't do something, you know, unethical or illegal. You know, part of what we're doing in that process is we're sending the clear message that if you take risks and you're wrong, well, you know this is how we treat that. And then it just furthers the cycle. So we've got a lot of opportunities there, create that environment that helps optimize learning, but that's got to support risk-taking. That's got to value, find the value in failure. I love that sentiment,
0: this idea that we need to be willing to take risks and understand that it doesn't always happen right the first time mm-hmm. um, and, but that that's, that there's real value in that learning. Yeah, um, I love that that framing of it that the failure itself can be an asset that learning is an asset as well just like a financial asset and that you can take and build those assets and leverage them into the next
1: opportunity yeah it's so hard for many people in an existing venture to apply that learning effectively in something that has passed a certain point it's really really hard to turn the ship and to recalibrate and sometimes the best thing they can do is to let something go and just move on to the next thing. We need to create an environment where that happens more because that learning just gets applied so much faster the next time. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sam, for taking the time to come over and talk with us. I know you, know, you do business in markets all over South Central Kansas, and I appreciate the work that you do. And I especially appreciate uh, your deep involvement with supporting entrepreneurs and trying to build a stronger entrepreneurship ecosystem in our region.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And also thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I also need to thank Bauercom for the cover art and Christopher Racker and Salt City Sound for help with recording and posting the podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Startup Hutch, you can find us on our website, startuphutch.com or on most social media platforms at Startup Hutch. We hope that if you're a business owner, you'll also consider joining the Startup Hutch Idea Exchange, our private Facebook group, where small business owners in Reno County can share ideas about business and ask each other questions. Finally, I hope that you'll do us a favor by sharing the podcast and also by letting us know if there's anybody that you'd like to have on the podcast in the future. You can reach us either in the comment section on Facebook or by using the contact page on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next time.